It's Halloween week, so I'm bringing you a little bit of a spooky, kind of creepy topic. Today, I'm sitting down with Hallie Rubenhold. She's a British historian whose previous work has been adapted into the TV series Harlots and whose most recent book re-examines the victims of Jack the Ripper. To ask the question, does our society and the immensely popular true crime genre value the murderer more than the victim? It's a really fascinating conversation about the way bad women are seen throughout history and what we typically do with them inside of media. I hope you enjoy this slightly creepy conversation, but one that's interesting and necessary nonetheless. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. Let's start by walk us through your career. This is a very interesting one and sort of explain what brings us together today. Well, I mean, gosh, I mean, the question is where in my career should I start explaining? (laughs) Because I feel like I've had multiple lifetimes, actually. I grew up, I spent half my life in the US and half my life in the UK. And um, well, actually more than half my life in the UK now, I've realized. And I uh, was educated half in the United States and half in the in the UK as well. And I have one uh, British parent and one American parent. And I have uh, one British passport and one American passport. And so I am, I'm well and truly of, of both places. So, I mean, I suppose... I guess it's history that history and storytelling mm-hmm. really is what brought me to where I am and and actually is it has brought me to this podcast as well it, it's I mean that's what motivated me when I was a child I I studied history as a, a an undergraduate and a and a postgraduate and I love telling the stories and discovering the stories of people who have never had a chance to speak before. Mm. And I think, you know, like a lot of people hear the word history and they suddenly break out in a rash because it reminds them too much of school. And that is something that I would hope to help people overcome because I history is storytelling. And I think I, you know, if you are completely captivated by novels, by Game of Thrones, by any of these types of things, you should be captivated by the individual, personal, human stories that are part of this enormous panorama, most of which we've not explored or unearthed. And I just think I want to bring this to people. And I think it's really exciting. I'm I'm what is defined as a public historian. So although I'm academically trained, 
I'm not spending my time necessarily at a university writing academic articles that nine people will read. Uh, The idea is to actually bring all of this in a multimedia way out into the public, into the public sphere. So I've written a number of nonfiction books and I've written uh, two novels. And perhaps I think the nonfiction you'll be most familiar with is uh, Viewers of Harlots. So I wrote a book called The Covent Garden Ladies, which was the inspiration for Harlots. And most recently, my book, The Five, which is The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper, what was a bestseller and won a very prestigious uh, literary prize in the UK called the Bailey Gifford Prize. And it's that which is the basis of my new podcast, Bad Women, that starts on the 5th of October. Mm. And so what's the definition of bad? Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, so we've used the title really quite ironically here. Basically, in the past, Any woman who didn't do what was expected of her, any woman who strayed off the path, and by straying off the path, I'm talking about, you know, there was one path for women in the past, and that was you are a good wife and you are a good mother. Mm -hmm. And you can be a carer, you can be a, a good daughter, you can be a good sister, but really your function in life was to bear children and to get married. Yes. And not in that order, to get married <laughs> and bear children, obviously. And if you did anything other than that, you were a bad woman. Mm. And if you look at most women, most women were bad women. And the stories we're talking about are, you know, we're looking at the victims of Jack the Ripper and all of these women were considered in some way dysfunctional women because they didn't fit that mold. Were they all were they all prostitutes? Did oh, he... I'm so glad you asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, what I discovered with my research is that that is the biggest lie that has mm. ever been perpetrated against these women. And it's part of this idea that they were bad women because they were homeless, they were largely alcoholic. They were estranged from their families. They were bad women in every way. And in the Victorian era, this idea of the broken woman, the alcoholic woman, the woman who is no longer living with her family, the woman who may have had mental health problems, was conflated with the idea of the fallen woman. The fallen woman being any woman who had sexual knowledge outside of marriage was a fallen woman. And the Victorian era conflated these two things together. So if you were morally bankrupt, you were morally bankrupt in every way. It didn't matter if, you know, if you had been married to one man your whole life and 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 you were separated from him, you were a fallen woman as well as a broken woman. So the interesting thing that I found is that only two of the five women who were killed by Jack the Ripper, only two of them we could consider as having been sex workers at any one point in their lives. And the reason for that is there is actual documentation that exists um, that they were involved with sex work. And the other three, there is absolutely no hard evidence whatsoever that they were. It was merely the aspersions that society was casting. It was what the police thought about them, what the press thought about them, and these natural conclusions that were drawn about them. 
Do you feel like that happens because it makes the story more sensational? Is it victim blaming? Almost like, oh, you deserved it because time period and how crazy society was about a woman being pure and good. And, you know, so it's sort of like, don't worry, society, you're safe because of this. Like, why do you think that that all of the, those, those lies happened? Yeah. Okay. All of those things. I mean, it's because it, it, it reinforces a social norm and that, you know, we tell ourselves stories and history is really a series of, of, of storytelling. It's who is who has got control of that narrative at any one time. So this idea that there are hard and fast facts, you know, is is debatable because people use circumstances and use events and they create a narrative around that. And and that's that's very much the case in in the 19th century. You know, here are women who are broken women, and they were murdered in the most vicious and terrible way. Well, it just goes to show you that if you're a bad woman, this is what happens to you. And so women, stay in line. You know, keep your place. Know your place. You know, shut your mouth. And my God, you know, that's not at all dissimilar from what we hear today. You know, women in social media, any woman who steps out of line, she's immediately slap down. Um, mm-hmm. Any woman who tries to exert any sort of influence in a male realm, there's often, a, you know, a lot of question. It, it's, it's, you know, we haven't strayed too far from that. You know, it also, it just fit the expected narrative. It was what society expected to happen to bad women. Do you have an opinion on who Jack the Ripper was? You know, again, Feels impossible to do all this. Well, you know, it's funny. Okay, so my feelings are this, are these. I think it's a totally relevant question now. I mean, he, these murders happened over 130 years ago. We will never, ever find out who he was. Right. We will never, ever. I mean, everybody who could have possibly known is dead. And also, you know, this is the other thing for people who are really interested in this case the majority of the documentation, the case files, are gone. Nothing exists except newspaper reports. We can't trust what's in sensationalized Victorian newspaper reports. And so if you're trying to derive, you know, clues and things like this from that sort of source material, you're not going to get real answers. Yeah, it's conjecture. It's conjecture. Was he the first serial killer is that why there's such a big story yeah in theory yeah i mean there were people who killed you know group there were there were people who killed before and again you know history is very murky the further you go back i mean to actually say that this is the first person who systematically went around and and killed random people i i mean that's almost i'm sure it's categorically wrong it's just that we don't have any record of this and I suppose we could call him the first modern serial killer because the newspapers played a huge role. The press played a huge role. And that's part of creating a killer is is utilizing the press and telling these stories. Interesting. So interesting. Were Mm. there things that you found as you were researching that totally shocked you about this case that you didn't know? Everything, absolutely <laughs> everything shocked me about this case. I mean, the, like, but what really shocked me the most, I mean, because the book and the podcast are about the women's lives. 
they the, it is not about him mm. so much it is about who they were as women and how society positioned them into the place so that they could be victims of a serial killer and we have the same problems today yeah. you know because there is a whole underclass of people you know and they're sometimes called the less dead who can disappear from the world and society doesn't care about them because society sees them as damaged already and not valuable. Wow. Wait, the less dead. I've never heard that term yes, before. Yes, the less dead. This is a term that's used to describe basically, you know, people on the margins. So homeless people, sex workers, anybody who society turns a blind eye to. And so when they're murdered, the authorities are less likely to inquire into this. I mean, this is the case with, I don't know if you're familiar with an American serial killer called Samuel Little, who killed, I mean, upwards of, I think, upwards of 80 people over several decades. But because he was killing sex workers and he was killing women on the margins, he was caught and let go and caught and let go. And actually, Samuel Little is one of the people we discuss in the podcast as well. And to show how this concept of the less dead is still with us today. Wow, that's wild. Yeah. I've never heard yeah. of that before. Yeah. I mean, we have to remember that. I mean, like we are culpable. We as a society, society creates a murderer, and society creates the victims at the same time. And we create them by ignoring the warning signs. Okay, so walk me through that because the, the concept of society creates a murderer is really interesting. Like it sort of can't exist in a vacuum or they're feeding off of the notoriety well, that comes from it. Like, what does that mean? Well, it's more like, you know, murderers tend to be people with psychological problems. Yeah. And if our society, you know, in many ways, the murderer fits the profile in some cases of the less dead, except he or she is alive, this is a marginalized person. So if we don't care about mental health, if we don't care about people who are suffering, if we don't care about people in poverty, if we don't address any of these issues, if we just brush it under the carpet, we are storing up problems for the future. Why is it, you know, in the case of Sam Little, like you just spoke about, why is it that people get away with it or get caught and let go? Or, you know, do you have an opinion on how someone's able to go as long as some of these killers do before they're actually discovered and caught? Well, I mean, that, that's, that's a really good question. I mean, it's, well, a very good example of that is what happened in the UK here in the 70s and 80s. We had the case of the Yorkshire Ripper. And this was, I mean, it's really extraordinary because this happened almost exactly 100 years after the Jack the Ripper. And this man randomly went around in Yorkshire in the north of England, uh, basically killing women by bashing them on the head. And he went out late at night and again, he was caught and he was let go and he was caught and he was let go. And those murders largely happened in the worst part of, of, uh, of town in Leeds, actually where I went to university. And the police believed because it happened in the worst part of town that this guy was murdering prostitutes, right? Oh, and who cares about prostitutes? Who cares? 
because, you know, the, these women are just, you know, they're asking for it, you know, and the moment, the moment you give credence to that, you have helped to create this killer. The moment you don't value human life, you have created this killer. And, and so, you know, he was caught and he was let go. And then they realized when, and this is so awful, when um, they claimed that one decent, respectable woman was killed, that, oh no, well, maybe he's not just killing prostitutes. The reality is he was killing women who just happened to be out late at night, women who were challenged by their financial circumstances. And, and it was only then that they were able to take the blinders off of their prejudice and see what this guy was really all about and able to catch him. And so, you know, this is what I mean by creating a killer. What does it look like, you know, this idea of sort of demonizing bad women, you know, by your definition, sort of the the ideology behind being a bad woman? It doesn't just show up in women being murdered. That's obviously an extreme case. But historically, lots of things happen to women who are bad whether that's being ostracized, whether that's being, you know, shunned, whether that's being, you know, you want to go back. Right. Like you want to go back historically and look at what happened to women who were called witches or um, women who were suffragettes or who were, you know, had political values or going back to ancient Greece and, you know, having your tongue cut out because you were trying to speak up. Like it's, if you, historically it's in the extreme. So sort of what are some of the ways that this fear of what happens if you step out of line is you being used to control women. Oh, well, I mean, always used to control women. I mean, this, it's, I mean, that's how women are controlled through that fear and through the, you know, if you don't do this, you, and, but you know, the other thing that's really interesting is we can't just blame men for this because, you know, women Women, men, and women actively subscribe to the concept of patriarchy. Oh, yeah. This is that. That's the only way it works. You know. So women police other women's behavior yes. because they're and, like, I am following the rules. You yeah. are not following the rules. So I'm going to make yeah. sure that you get in trouble for not doing the thing that I am repressed and feel like I have to do. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so that's that is how it's all worked. That's how the structure has always worked. I think today, I think we are very fortunate in that in many ways as women, we're learning to take a step back from being judgmental. You know, I think learning not to judge other women by your standards. And often we have to question ourselves about what we've internalized as being acceptable as well. And where where the hell did that come from? You know, stuff that like I hear myself even in my head saying, and I think, wh- where on earth did that come from? Right. You know, and I, I just think we have to listen to ourselves and really not judge other women, you know, especially like women, women who have children, judging women who don't have children, vice versa, mothers who decide to be stay-at-home mothers as opposed to mothers who go to work, that level of judgment, you know, again, that's all coming from the same place, which is this definition of what makes a good woman and as opposed to a bad woman and who's being a good woman, who's being a bad woman, who's being a good mother, who's being a bad mother. Gina, just like park it. Really? (laughs) That's not it. We are not helping ourselves at all. 
Yeah, I was just having a conversation uh, the other day on podcasts with a professor at uh, Harvard professor, a long history in history and sort of weaving that into nonfiction books in a different realm than you, but very similar conversation. And he said this thing that I chewed on for days after we chatted, which was, we're not being told an accurate history. So he, mm. uh, his work is predominantly in um, civil rights and what racism looks like in America. And he said, you know, we're not being told an accurate portrayal of our history, which is why we keep repeating it. Because if you don't learn from what you are doing as a society, things get swept under the rug and you will just, it will just be cyclical and you'll just keep repeating those things again and again. And I feel like it's, I always get a little twitchy when the universe sort of sends me the same message from a bunch of different people in different ways, which is what this feels like, is this idea of this doesn't just show up for us in terms of certain parts of our lives. This is true for all pieces. And absolutely, you know, we're talking about these extreme examples, but I also think that what does it look like for women in general to march to the beat of their own drum, to believe that they can sort of blaze their own trail, to not follow the rules that society sets out for them, even in ways, you know, like one of the things that amazes me, it's so important and such good work, but is like how hard as women, I don't know if you feel like it's like this in the UK, but how hard we have to fight for the right to sort of just love our body, not think it oh has to look God. a certain way or be a certain yeah. way and not judge other women. It's, it's crazy. I know. And I do I feel know. like that's an example of sort of those, like, if we can just sort of keep women in a box, if we can, you know, give them their rules and regulations and they won't really ruffle any feathers and they won't rock the boat. Uh, and sort of how this keeps showing up for us again and again. So as you're doing this work, do you have thoughts on how we as women can arm ourselves with information and make better choices? And just coming from the men, God bless them. There's some good men out there, but it's not going to come from them. Yeah. From it, us. Yeah. I mean, I think you've almost kind of answered your own question, which is arm, arm yourself with information and, and I mean, and reliable information. So, I mean, this is, again, we live in a time of information wars, you know, we're bombarded by messages and things, and we really have to look at the source. And then part of what I do as a historian is um, source analysis. So you look at things, do you think, is this a reliable source? And by that, I mean, you know, not does it accord necessarily with my set of beliefs, but is this coming from a reputable outlet? Is this is this something just appearing on Facebook? <laughs> yeah. Is this something, you know, and also even like, you know, when we're researching things, if we're looking things up, you know, Wikipedia isn't the last, isn't the final line in anything, you know, the final word in anything. It's, it's what people put up. And so we just have to question what it is, you know, go to reputable, go to read books, read books, you know, <laughs> I that. mean, seriously, imagine that it's so old school, but you know, this is like, think about things, ask people, have an open mind about stuff. And, and I think that is, you know, the, falling back on critical analysis is the most important thing that we can do. And um, especially when we think about, okay, so the other thing is 
when we think about women's position in society and we think, oh, things have always been like this, you know, things have always, I, I would always question this, oh, things have always been like this or things have always been like that because generally they're not. And we're only hearing part of the story. And the more we tell other people's stories, the more we explore other people's experiences, the, the richer our lives become. The more we understand, the more we see of the world, the more we understand, the more people we meet, the more we understand, you know? And and I think also in this time, both in the UK and the US, there's got to be a period of healing. We've got to come together again. There's been a lot of division and, you know, the pandemic hasn't helped. It's time to, it's time to look for what we have in common it's time to not fight so much. I know I'm going off on a tangent. No, I tangent, love it. But- <laughs> I love it. You said something when you were chatting just then about following, learning, sort of almost like following the rabbit trail down. And what it sparked for me is the word curiosity. So during the month of October as a community and, and the content that we're creating here, everything is around this word curious. Because I think that we talk a lot about making change or choosing new paths. And sometimes those words can feel triggering to people because they've tried it before. But I love the word curious because it feels playful and it feels um, light. And so what you're really describing is being curious about why things are the way they are, about not accepting sort of that's always the way that we've done things here. So how much has curiosity played into the work that you do? I imagine as a historian that you're kind of like following a trail and then you find another nugget and you find, can you walk through your process of, of curious and how that Oh gosh, totally. I I just think, I mean, I think what really motivates me, what really drives me and always has been is to tell a different story and to search out that different story historically and to find like, I mean, I I don't, I, I love stories and history is this like infinite well of personal human experience. Some other human being somewhere else at some other time has felt exactly what you have felt and has gone through things that you've gone through. And like a testament to that is like Shakespeare's works. You know, Shakespeare never gets old because Shakespeare is always relevant to the human experience. And studying history is about the human experience, learning what it felt like to be human, but also for me, like what the restrictions were in various time periods as well. Like, you know, what if, you know, I suddenly had to go back 250 years, like what would define and confine my life? Right. And that is interesting because then it makes you reflect on your life today. That's what, you know, that's a a type of curiosity that drives me. But also I think I also regard history like when I'm on the trail of somebody's life, when I'm reconstructing somebody's life, like literally reaching into the darkness and pulling this unknown human being into our time. It's the desire to keep pulling, the desire to keep looking for information about them, the desire to bring them into our world, three-dimensional, and let them live again. It's an extraordinary experience of being almost a reanimator. So cool. I love it. (laughs) Hallie, for people who are listening and they want to find the podcast, they want to read the books, they want to take a deeper dive, will you tell us where we find you, where we find the books? Like, Give us all the juicy details. Absolutely. 
Okay, great. So so my podcast, which is coming out on the 5th of October, is called Bad Women, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. And it's 15 episodes, and uh, we will be exploring the lives of the five victims of Jack the Ripper. But more than that, we'll be, descri- we'll be exploring, well, I'll be exploring, rather, because I'm presenting it, everything to do with their world and our world, and all of the things, actually, that you and I have just discussed here. Cool. And we're going to be looking at what happens to women when they step out of line historically now? I've had a lot of pushback from a group of people called ripperologists who are largely men who feel a sort of ownership over this material. And I was trolled by them. And part of this is my experience. We'll be exploring true crime. You know, why are we interested in true crime? We'll be exploring, you know, why is it I feel that we will never know who Jack the Ripper is and why it's not important. We'll be looking at um, all sorts of issues from addiction to sex work to, and how it impacts our lives today and women's lives today as well. It's interesting that you say the true crime, because sort of going back to our conversation at the start of the podcast, there is this huge trend and this sort of obsession with true crime that feels like people are more interested in the story of the crime than the person who was murdered or the person who was hurt or the families who were affected, which uh, I'm realizing the tie for the first time, the sort of idea of the lesser dead. Is that what you guys are, are sort of unpacking in the show? Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's, I like to think of this as ethical true crime or, or feminist true crime, which looks at a crime from a completely different angle, which isn't putting the murderer front and center. It's actually, if you remove the murderer from the story, the story is no less interesting. And all of these little microcosms and all these causal effects, all of these things come together and you realize this is a whole world you're exploring. And you see so much stuff that if you were just focused on that straight narrative of killer and victim, you would never see and you'd never understand. So there are ways in which we can tell murder stories which are equally fascinating. And that's something that I'm exploring and um, I'm exploring in the next book I'm writing as well. And women play such an active role in so much of society, both now and in the past, and their roles have been overlooked. And again, you know, crime is a really interesting like moment in time Mm -hmm. where you can just take a snapshot and you can see who's in the background, who's pulling strings, who's actually doing stuff here. What is this about? And I love it. It's fascinating. So cool. I can't wait to listen to the podcast. I'm a huge history nerd. So this one is right up my alley. Thank you so much for the time. And thank you for unpacking this with us because you definitely have given me a different perspective to chew on. And I really appreciate it. Uh, Are you on social or is there a place that, yeah, tell us that. Yeah. So I'm on Twitter and my name is Hallie Rubenhold and it's just at Hallie Rubenhold. I also have a Facebook page and uh, Instagram as well. And I have a website, which I don't keep up to date very much. (laughs) But if you want to, if you want to keep up to date with what's going on, I think Twitter is probably the best place to get me. Awesome. Hallie, thank you so much for the time. I hope you have a great day and good luck with the launch of the podcast. We're all really Thank you. The Rachel Hollis podcast is hosted by me, Rachel Hollis. Our show is edited by Andrew Weller with additional production support by Sterling Coates. Our executive producer is Cameron Berkman. 
The Rachel Hollis Podcast is a 3% Chance production.